Chapter One of Grimm, the Story of a Pike by Sven Floran. Translated from the Danish by J. Muir and J. Alexander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Daniel Foster. Chapter One Life Clear running water filled the ditch, but the bottom was dull black powdery mud. It lay inches deep, layer upon layer of one tiny particle upon another, and so loose and light that a thick, opaque, smoke-like column ascended at the slightest touch. A monster with the throat and teeth of a crocodile, a flat, treacherous forehead, and large, malicious eyes was lying close to the bottom in the wide, sun-warmed cross-dike that cut its way inland from the level depths of the great lake. The entire monster measured scarcely a finger's length. The upspringing water plants veiled her body and drew waving shadows over her round, slender tail. When the sun was shining, she liked to stay here among the bottom vegetation and imitate a drifting piece of reed. Her reddish-brown color with the tiger-like transverse stripes made an excellent disguise. She simply was a piece of reed. Even the sharp-eyed heron, which had dropped down unnoticed about a dozen yards off, and was now noiselessly, with slow, cautious steps, wading nearer and nearer, took her at the first glance for a stick. All the ditch-water life of a summer day was pulsing around the young pike. Water spiders went up for air and came down with it between their hind legs to moor their silvery diving bells beneath the whorls of the water moss. One boat bug after another, with a shining air bubble on its belly to act as a swimming bag and for oars a pair of long legs sticking far out at the sides, darted with great spurts through the water or rose and sank with the speed of a balloon. The young pike peered upwards and saw, in the shelter of a tuft of rushes, a collection of black, boat-shaped whirligigs, showing like dots against the shining surface. The little water beetles lay and dozed, but all at once a sudden storm seemed to descend upon them and they scattered precipitately, whirling away in wider and wider circles, only to congregate again just as suddenly, like a flock of sheep. The young pike disappeared from the heron's view in a cloud of mud and glided off to some distance, finally coming to anchor on a wide, submerged plain in a broad creek, shadowed by a clump of luxurious marsh marigolds, whose yellow flowers gleamed out from among the clusters of green heart-shaped leaves. There was never any peace around her. When one animal was on its way down, another would be on its way up, and the bed of ooze beneath her was in incessant motion. Sticks moved to right and left. Hairy balls lay and rolled over one another. There was a twisting and turning of larvae in all directions. The active water beetles were dredging incessantly, releasing leaves and stalks which slowly and weirdly rose to the surface. Air bubbles, too, were set free and ascended quickly with a rotary motion. 
Here two large tiger beetles were fighting with a poor water bug. The flat-bodied insect stretched out its scorpion-like claws toward its enemies, but the tiger beetles seized it one and at each end beat off its claws with their strong palpi and tore its head from its body. It must have been almost a pleasure to find oneself so neatly dispatched. Everything tortured and killed down here, some indeed even devoured themselves. To lose arms and legs and flesh from their body was all in the order of the day, and anything resting for but a minute was taken for carrion. The big horse leech had wound its rhythmically serpentine way through the water. It was tired now and had just stretched itself out for a moment's rest when the supposed pieces of stick upon which it lay seized it and voracious heads with sharp jaws attacked its flesh. It was within an ace of being made captive forever, but at last succeeded in making its escape and pushing off with two of its tormentors after it. The young pike watched attentively the flight of the black leech. She saw that to devour others and to avoid being devoured oneself was the end and aim of life. For a long time she remained quite still, only an undulating movement of the dorsal fin and the malicious glitter of the eyes revealing her vitality. Slowly she opened and closed her small, wide mouth, and let the oxidizing water flow over her blood-red gills. It was not long before she had forgotten her recent peril and once more became filled with the cruel passion of the hunter. From the shadow of the marsh marigold she darted under the newly unfolded leaf of a water lily. This was a very favorite lurking place. She could lie there with her back right up against the undersurface of the leaf and her snout on the very border of its shadow, ready to strike. The silvery flash of small fish twinkled around her, and myriads of tiny shining crustaceans whisked about so close to her nose that at any moment she could have snapped them up by the score into her voracious mouth. It was especially things that moved that had a magic attraction for Grimm. From the time when, but twelve to fifteen days old, she had consumed the contents of her yolk sac and opened her large, voracious mouth, everything that flickered, twisted, and moved, all that sought to escape, aroused her irresistible desire. In the innermost depths of her being, there was an overmastering need expressing itself in an insatiableness, a conviction that she could never have enough and a fear that others would clear the waters of all that was eatable. An insane greed animated her, and even when she had eaten so much that she could eat no more, she kept swimming about with spoil in her mouth. On the other hand, anything at rest and quiet possessed little attraction for her. She felt no hunger at sight of it and no desire to possess it. That she could take at any time. Meanwhile, the keen-eyed heron wading up to its breast in the water comes softly and silently trawling through the ditch. Sedately it goes about its business, stalking along with slow, measured steps. Its big, seemingly heavy body sways upon its thin, greenish-yellow legs, its short tail almost combing the surface of the water, while its long, round neck is in constant motion, 
directing the dagger-like beak like a foil into all kinds of attacking positions. Sea crows and terns scream around it, and from time to time three or four of them unite in harrying their great rival. Just as the heron has brought its beak close to the surface of the water, ready to seize its prey, the gulls dash upon it from behind. With a hiss, it curves its neck and turns the foil upwards, snapping and biting at its tormentors. An irritating little flock of gulls may go on thus for a long time, and when at last, screaming and mocking, they take their departure, they have spoilt many a chance and waited many precious minutes of the big, silent, patient fisher's time. The gulls once gone, the heron applies itself with redoubled zeal to its business. From varying attacking positions, its beak darts down into the water, but often without result, and it has to go farther afield. Then at last it captures a little eel. It is not easy, however, to swallow the wriggling captive. The eel twists and refuses to be swallowed, so the bird has to reduce its liveliness by rolling up and down in its sharp-edged beak. Then it glides down. This time, too, fortune is disposed to favor the young pike. The heron, coming up behind her, cautiously bends its neck over the drifting piece of reed. It sees there is something suspicious about it, but thinks it is mistaken, and is about to take another step forward. When only halfway, it pauses with its foot in the air, and the next moment the blow falls. Grim only once moved her tail, then she was seized. Something hard and sharp and strong held her fast, and she passed head foremost down into a warm, narrow channel. There was a fearful crush of fish in the channel, and much elbowing with fins and twisting of tails. Something behind her was pushing, but the throng in front blocked the way. She could get no further, and yet she glided on. Very slowly, the thick, slimy water in the channel bore the living, muddy tangle that surrounded her along. She felt the corners of her mouth rub against the sides of the channel. She could scarcely breathe. In the meantime, the heron was flying homewards to its young, carrying Grim and the rest of the catch. Out on the lake lay a boat in which a man sat fishing. Experience told the bird it was a fisherman, but here the bird was wrong. The man had a gun in the boat, and as the bird sailed upwards, a shot was fired, which compelled it to relinquish a part of its booty in order to escape more quickly. Grim was among the fortunate ones. Suddenly the crush in the long, dark channel grew less, and the sluggish stream of mud that was burying her along changed its course. A little later, the stream gathered furious pace and carried her with it. She saw light and felt space round her. She was able to move her fins. Then she fell from the heron's beak with a height of about twenty yards. She had time to notice how suffocatingly dry the other world was. It seemed to draw out her entrails, and all her efforts to right herself were in vain. Then she regained her native element. Water covered her gills, and she could begin to swim. This is the end of chapter one.